Hello, everyone. Happy New Year, and welcome back to the History of Tammany Hall podcast. Episode 10, The Elections of 1800 and 1801. Last time we saw Aaron Burr take control of the Tammany Society and shape it into a tool for furthering his career. Now, with a hotly contested presidential election on the horizon, Burr had the opportunity to put this new political machinery into action for the first time. The results would change American political history. This, dear listeners, is a big one. The moment this show, much like Aaron Burr's political career, has been building towards for quite some time. You'll note that this episode is a good deal longer than usual. However, I thought it made sense to tell this story in one big go rather than break it up into smaller chunks. Think of this as a New Year's extravaganza. I hope you enjoy. Before we dig into the election of 1800 proper, let's pull the lens back a bit and take a quick survey of the national scene during the four years of John Adams's presidency. As we've discussed in the past, the election of 1796 was a bitter and contentious affair. The Federalists attacked Jefferson as a radical atheist, while the Democratic-Republicans condemned Adams as a crypto-monarchist. This was hardly a promising start for the new era of post-Washington politics. Yet, for a brief moment, it seemed as though these partisan tensions might be overcome. At the inauguration in March 1797, Adams and Jefferson were sworn in as the nation's new president and vice-president. It was possible to squint and see these two old comrades from the independence struggle reunited and bound by mutual respect and a shared sense of patriotic duty, despite their ideological differences. It was not to be. As was true for much of Washington's term of office, international affairs became a major source of bitterness within the United States. Like his predecessor, Adams was forced to contend with life as a weak, neutral power in a world defined by the global conflict set off by the French Revolution. Jefferson, recovering from his electoral defeat, consoled himself that he would not be assuming the presidency under such difficult circumstances. Washington, he noted, quote, is fortunate to get off just as the bubble is bursting, leaving others to hold the bag. The Jay Treaty, for all the controversy it generated, succeeded in its primary goal of stabilizing relations with Great Britain. However, it had also elicited an angry response from the French. Pierre Adet, Citizen Genet's successor as French ambassador to the U.S., openly backed the Democratic-Republican ticket in 1796. Following Adams's victory, France suspended diplomatic relations with the U.S. and stepped up naval harassment of American shipping. Many Federalists, including Hamilton and most of Adams's cabinet, reacted with predictable fury. They urged the president to put the nation on a war footing, complete with a significant military buildup. Adams was no friend of the French Revolution, yet he had no desire to pick a fight with the nation that had, in part thanks to the emergence of a brilliant young general named Bonaparte, established itself as the predominant military power in Europe. Instead, the president hoped to find a diplomatic solution 
and authorized a new mission to Paris, which would, quote, dissipate umbrage and adjust all differences by a treaty between the two powers. Eager to maintain a bipartisan balance, Adams initially approached both Jefferson and Madison about leading this mission. When they declined, he sent Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and John Marshall, both Southern Federalists, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, a longtime personal friend of Adams despite his allegiance to the Democratic Republicans. When the American delegation arrived in France, the French foreign minister, Charles de Talleyrand, refused to meet with them for a full five months. Talleyrand was a legendarily slippery figure who, over the course of his long career at the heights of French politics, served two monarchies, a republic, and an empire. He was a master of a European style of backstairs diplomacy for which the American delegates had little experience or aptitude. While Talleyrand refused to meet directly with the American mission, they were approached by three of his underlings, identified in dispatches to the State Department as X, Y, and Z. These officials shocked their American counterparts by demanding a bribe of some $250,000 as the price for gaining an official meeting with the French government. The Americans were scandalized and called for an abrupt end to negotiations. Within months, Marshall and Pinckney were on their way home back to America, though Gary remained in fr France. Word of Talleyrand's behavior reached the United States in early 1798. Adams, without releasing the contents of the State Department dispatches, drafted a statement to Congress condemning the French and calling for a military buildup. Congressional Democratic Republicans assumed that the president was manipulating the situation and demanded the release of all documents relating to the mission. Adams was happy to comply with this request, and the opposition's move backfired. News of the bribe request sparked a wave of anti-French and pro-administration sentiment. The XYZ affair, as the incident became known, gave cantankerous old John Adams a sudden burst of popularity. The nation was quickly consumed with war fever. A formal navy and marine corps were both established for the first time in American history. An undeclared naval war, now known as the Quasi-War, led to skirmishes between American and French vessels in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. Congressional Federalists also made a controversial push to increase the size of the U.S.'s standing army. For many Americans, standing armies were the tools of despotic monarchies with no place in a Republican system. Even Adams questioned the necessity of this step, telling his Secretary of War that, quote, at present there is no more prospect of seeing a French army here than there is in heaven, end quote. Yet, bowing to pressure from within his party, Adams called for an expansion of the army with General Washington in place as commander-in-chief. While the aging former president accepted the commission, he insisted, much to Adams's chagrin, on naming Hamilton as his deputy with day-to-day -day control over the new force. Adams and Hamilton, the two most prominent Federalists in the country, had long hated each other. Now, the President was convinced that the former Secretary of the Treasury would use his military post to push the country into full-out war with France and establish himself as an American dictator in the pocket of the British. 
The Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 were the most infamous product of this war scare. These were a series of four laws regulating immigration and political speech. The three immigration laws made it harder for immigrants to become citizens and permitted the president to expel foreign-born residents deemed a threat to public safety. Here, not for the last time, we see immigration as a hot-button issue in American politics. Jefferson described the laws as detestable and worthy of the 8th or 9th century, while one New England Federalist warned that the nation would soon become overrun by, quote, hordes of wild Irishmen. Burr, for his part, was open in his opposition to these anti-immigration measures and decried the growing xenophobic strain in American politics. Quote, a man of innate virtue and honor, whether born in Paris or at London, is a man of virtue and honor in every part of the world. End quote. By far the most controversial part of this wartime legislative program was the Sedition Act, which prohibited a wide array of political speech that defamed or otherwise criticized the government. The executive branch, under the aegis of Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, soon oversaw a broad crackdown on the opposition press and other leading Democratic-Republican figures. Opposition to the Alien and Sedition Acts was robust in Republican-leaning states. The state legislatures of Kentucky and Virginia both issued resolutions questioning the constitutionality of these emergency measures and holding that they may not be enforceable in these states. Though it was not known at the time, these resolutions had been drafted by Jefferson and Madison. At the time, the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions provided a rallying cry for opponents to the Federalist program. The Democratic-Republicans could now cast themselves as defenders of American liberty in the face of monarchical Federalist government. Yet, on a deeper level, the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions opened up deep and unsettling questions about the relationship between the federal and state governments in the American constitutional system. If pushed to their logical conclusion, the arguments made by Madison and Jefferson could justify nullification or maybe even secession. As Aaron Burr said in a characteristic bit of understatement, the authors of the resolutions, quote, in their honest love of liberty had gone a little too far, end quote. Ultimately, however, these dramatic tensions were relieved when changes in the international scene presented Adams with a peaceful path out of this war scare. The French had faced some military setbacks, most notably Napoleon's failed invasion of Egypt. The Quasi-War was an unnecessary headache, and Talleyrand put out peace feelers. Adams, never as gung-ho for war as some of his colleagues, jumped at this chance. He quickly announced the appointment of a new minister to France. In later years, Adams hoped that his tombstone would read, quote, Here lies John Adams, who took upon himself the responsibility of peace with France in 1800. End quote. The move sparked outrage within the president's own party. One Federalist condemned Adams as, quote, a vain, jealous, and half-frantic mind. Hamilton was confirmed in his hatred for the president, and he vowed to do everything within his power to deny him a second term. Yet, 
For all this, the decision to send the peace mission was vintage John Adams. While he has gone down in history as the, only, as the country's only Federalist president, the role of party leader was never a natural fit. He was far too independent-minded and his political ideology too idiosyncratic. And so, as Adams prepared to run for re-election, he found himself ever more isolated, if not hated, by both Federalists and Democratic Republicans. The election that would take place in this fraught atmosphere was to be a remarkably drawn-out affair. Presidential campaigns at this time were a very different beast from what we might think today. First and foremost, there was no single election day in which voters across the country pulled the lever for their candidate of choice. Instead, there were effectively 16 different elections, as each state could select its own time and method for choosing its representatives in the Electoral College. As a result, important votes would be held from April through October of 1800. Furthermore, only a handful of states picked their electors through a direct popular vote. The rest would be selected by the various state legislatures. In these states, the real contest would be for control of the state house. Despite all the tumult of the preceding four years, the electoral map was broadly similar to that of 1796. Adams could count on the backing of his home region of New England. Jefferson would find most of the South solidly behind him. The real contest would come down to a few competitive states in the mid-Atlantic. And so, the nation's eyes turned to New York, which held its elections for the state Senate and state Assembly in April. The winner of this contest would control the state's 12 elect vital electoral votes. The Democratic-Republicans were well aware that defeat here could prove fatal to their national ambitions. This would require Jefferson to sweep both Pennsylvania and New Jersey, which seemed like a daunting task. The Federalists, who held control of the outgoing legislature, could still count on a strong showing in most of the upstate districts. The Democratic-Republicans, then, placed their hopes of swinging the state on the 13 assemblymen from New York City, who would be chosen as a block. As Jefferson put it in the letter to Madison, quote, If the city election of New York is in favor of the Republican ticket, the issue will be Republican. Nobody understood the importance of this election better than Aaron Burr. From his estate at Richmond Hill on the banks of the Hudson in today's West Village, Burr oversaw a sophisticated political apparatus that was years in the making and unmatched in the young republic's history. This was the moment he'd been waiting for. As a first step, Burr organized a citywide Democratic-Republican General Committee. Topped by a steering committee of Tammany loyalists, this general committee had branches across the city, going down to the lowest ward level. Burr used this ground-level organization to get vital information about Burr, New York's electorate. He had his subordinates draw up a list of every eligible voter in New York City. Even with the state's restrictive pop property qualifications, this roster ran into the thousands. With this list in hand, Burr's followers in the Tammany Society commenced an ambitious canvassing effort. They hoped to obtain as much relevant information as possible about every voter. 
How had each individual voted in past elections? Was he now sympathetic to the Democratic-Republican cause? Would he be willing to volunteer in the election? As is always the case in politics, fundraising was central to Burr's efforts. His canvassers went door-to-door soliciting small-scale donations from Democratic-Republican-friendly households. At the same time, he drew up a list of wealthier friends and acquaintances who could be counted on to make larger contributions. When one wealthy, if perhaps somewhat unintelligent, supporter pledged $100, Burr told his supporters to double the amount, saying, quote, He will pay the $200 and thank you for letting him off so easy. Burr did not invent any of these activities. Organizing, canvassing, and fundraising had already become the bedrocks of political mobilization. However, few of his contemporaries could match the energetic and meticulous way he went about these tasks. Unfriendly observers saw Burr as a malignant manipulator. In the words of one Federalist journalist, Burr was, quote, versed in the art of hocus-pocus, while sitting in his stateroom, waiting the entrance of his political tools into the antechamber, his mandates fly through the Union. From another perspective, it's hard not to see Burr as a strikingly modern and professional political figure, for better or for worse. Burr's control of the local Democratic-Republican machinery was evident when he announced his slate of candidates for the state legislature. Outside the highest levels of national government, many elected offices were not held by the most ambitious or influential political figures. Sure, members of powerful families and young men on the rise might serve a term or two in the state legislature as a means of boosting their reputations, but for the most part they would rather avoid the costs and hassle of campaigning in contested elections and spending half their time up in Albany. As a result, candidates for state legislative races were often lackluster, marked more by loyalty to their political patrons than any particular talent. This was certainly the approach the Federalists took when selecting their candidates for state assembly in 1800. Hamilton put forth an uninspiring slate of loyalists who could be counted on to follow his commands. One Burr ally rather snobbishly dismissed the Federalist ticket as, quote, two grocers, a ship chandler, a baker, a potter, a bookseller, a mason, and a shoemaker. Hamilton, usually a canny operator, had played directly into Burr's hands. John Adams later provided an account of Burr's reaction to the Federalist slate. Quote, Burr, who had friends in all circles, had a copy of this list brought to him immediately. He read it over and, with great gravity, folded it up, put it in his pocket, and without uttering another word, said, Now I have him all hollow. This dramatic telling is probably apocryphal. Uh, who knows how Adams would have been privy to Burr's personal conversations, but still it's probably not far off from his true feelings. Burr had intentionally delayed the announcement of the Democratic-Republican until after Hamilton's list was made public and the Federalists were stuck with their subpar candidates. Burr carefully choreographed his party's nominating caucus to ensure that he and his allies would control the proceedings. He follow, provided the following instructions for his followers. 
quote, As soon as the room begins to fill up, I will nominate Daniel Smith as chairman and put the question quickly. Daniel, being in the chair, you must nominate one member. I will nominate one, and in this way we will get them all nominated. We must then have some inspiring speeches, close the meeting, and retire. End quote. Burr's slate of candidates for the city's assembly seats included a list of political all-stars, such as General Horatio Gates, the aging hero of the Revolutionary War and victory at the Battle of Saratoga. Important allies, such as the Livingston family, were adequately represented. Most striking of all, Burr had somehow convinced former Governor George Clinton to run for a term as a lowly state assemblyman. At a stroke, Burr had managed to unite the often fractious elements within the New York State Democratic-Republican Party. Livingstonites, Clintonites, and Burrites were all represented on the slate, and, for the time being, were all focused on swinging the upcoming presidential election. Just as significantly, the presence of respected, nonpartisan figures like Gates would be sure to appeal to swing voters, including many who had previously voted Federalist. At first, the party caucus on William Street responded to Burr's announcement with gasps of surprise. Once he finished, the meeting hall was filled with cheers and the nominations were passed unanimously. With his chosen slate of candidates now in place, Burr continued on a tireless schedule of campaigning. He organized rallies of, quote, active and patriotic Democrats, both young and old, gave speeches across the city, organized ward-level meetings, and, of course, called for, quote, frequent meetings at Tammany Hall until the election, end quote. Burr's contemporaries were taken aback by his sheer energy and hard work. He was known to put in 15-hour shifts between meals. He had a whole so host of mattresses placed in his own home so his allies would never be far. As Matthew Davis, Burr's Tammany acolyte, later wrote, quote, it was one of the most remarkable exhibitions of the force of his character, this bending everyone who approached him to his use and compelling their unremitted, though often unwilling, labors in his behalf. End quote. The campaign culminated when the three day voting window opened on April 29th. Burr spent entire days camped outside polling places where electioneering was still permitted. Not to be outdone, Hamilton also worked furiously. He could be seen riding a white horse across New York City, urging support for the Federalist candidates. It was not enough. Burr's painstaking organization and grueling workload finally bore fruit. The Democratic Republicans carried New York City by a majority of 445 votes. Under the winner-takes-all voting system, the party would now gain all 13 of the city's seats in the state assembly. When the new legislature convened, the Republicans would enjoy a commanding majority of 64 to 39. Burr had every reason to celebrate. Quote, the victory is complete in the manner of it highly honorable, he wrote in a valedictory note to Jefferson. This, however, was not quite the end of the election of 1800 in New York State. Hamilton, well aware of the importance of the Empire State's 12 electoral votes, concocted a desperate plan which would see the electors chosen by the outgoing pro-federalist state legislature rather than the newly elected body. 
as Hamilton put it in a letter to Governor John Jay, quote, I am aware that there are weighty objections, but in times like these, it will not do to be over-scrupulous. Delicacy and propriety ought not to hinder the taking of a legal and constitutional step to prevent an atheist in religion and a fanatic in politics from getting possession of the helm of state. Jay, despite his Federalist allegiance, found the plan distasteful. Tactfully, he did not respond to Hamilton's proposal, but in a personal note, he described it as, quote, proposing a measure for party purposes which it would not become me to adopt. The election results would stand, and the Democratic-Republican victory in New York was confirmed. With New York now securely in the Democratic-Republican column, the national campaign continued apace. When Congressional Democratic-Republicans convened in May to select their ticket, Burr, the, archi the architect of the stunning victory in the Empire State, was the natural choice as Jefferson's running mate. The party would once again depend on the uneasy alliance between the Virginian and the New Yorker. The Federalists, meanwhile, remained fatally divided between Adams and Hamilton, who backed Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina as an alternative to the sitting president. In response, Adams fired pro-Hamilton voices in his cabinet and disbanded the standing army that had been raised during the quasi-war with France. Both Federalist factions claimed that they would rather see Jefferson take office than the triumph of their internal opponents. The remaining states cast their ballots over the summer and early autumn of 1800. The Democratic-Republicans made gains in Maryland while the Federalists held New Jersey and managed to split the electoral votes of Pennsylvania, which Jefferson had carried in 1796. Critically, South Carolina, one of the few southern states with a major Federalist presence, fully backed the Jefferson-Burr ticket. The electors gathered and cast their ballots in each of the 16 states on December 3rd. It took weeks for all of the results to reach the new capital of Washington, D.C. However, by the time the last votes came in from the western frontier of Kentucky and Tennessee, it was clear that the Democratic-Republican ticket had triumphed. Jefferson and Burr both ended up with 73 electoral votes, while Adams finished with 65 and his running mate Pinckney had 64. The margin was close enough that a Federalist victory in New York would have swung the election to Adams. Burr and his Tammany allies could credibly claim to have won the election for their party. Apart from everything else, the results showed the major strides that party organization had made since the last election. In 1796, many electors viewed their party's official ticket as a mere recommendation. Some 13 candidates in all had received electoral votes. In 1800, however, discipline ruled. Each and every Democratic elector cast a ballot for both Jefferson and Burr. Yet, in the event, this party discipline may have gone a bit too far. You'll note that Jefferson and Burr ended up tied with 73 electoral votes each. And these days, each elector cast two ballots, which both carried the same weight. They were not classified as presidential and vice-presidential votes. So, while Burr was obviously meant to be the second man on the Democratic-Republican ticket, his 73 electoral votes were worth just as much as Jefferson's. 
Remarkably, Burr now found himself on the very precipice of the presidency. His rise shocked his contemporaries. As John Adams put it, quote, All the old patriots, all the splendid talents, the long experience both of Federalists and Anti-Federalists, must be subjected to the humiliation of seeing this dexterous gentleman rise like a balloon filled with inflammable air over their heads. At the same time, Adams could not resist smiling at what the results meant for one of his great rivals. Quote, Mr. Hamilton has carried his eggs to a fine market. The very two men of all the world that he was most jealous of are now placed over him. End quote. In the event of the unelectoral college tie, the House of Representatives must choose between the top two candidates, with each state's congressional delegation voting as a single block. To add a further wrinkle, this vote takes place among the outgoing, lame-duck House of Representatives, which, in this case, was controlled by the Federalists. The young country was facing a constitutional puzzle, the likes of which it had not yet encountered. The House would hold its vote in February of 1801. This meant that the central figures, both Jefferson and Burr, of course, but also national Federalist leaders, would have some two months to grasp the lay of the land and jockey for position. Jefferson could confidently count on the support of eight pro-democratic Republican delegations. However, this still left him one shy of the nine votes required for an absolute majority. Six delegations were controlled by Federalists, while two states, Maryland and Vermont, were evenly split between the two parties. It was clear then that everything would hinge on the choices made by Congressional Federalists. As Jefferson wrote to James Monroe, quote, We remain in the hands of our enemies. The Democratic-Republican leader was certain that the Federalists would use their position to draw out proceedings and override the election results. Quote, the Federalists openly declare that they will prevent an election and will name a president of the Senate pro tem by what they say would be only a stretch of the Constitution. They would then transfer the government by an act either to that official or to the Chief Justice or the Secretary of State. Jefferson's fears may sound outlandish, but they were not entirely baseless. No one had any idea what would happen if the deadlock remained unresolved by March, when the new president was scheduled to be sworn in. Left with no other choice, the Federalist majority in Congress may have been tempted to put one of their own into power. A more plausible scenario, however, would see the Federalists strike a deal with the other man on the ballot, Burr. For many Federalists, the New Yorker would be a far more palatable candidate than his running mate. Jefferson, the supposed radical Democrat and atheist, was, after all, the great boogeyman of the Federalist imagination. Burr, on the other hand, had always maintained an image of studied moderation, or lack of principles according to his critics. He was an ordinary, ambitious politician, not an ideologue like Jefferson. As one Federalist put it, Burr's, quote, very selfishness made him a man they could do business with. Clearly, rumors of this sort were circulating widely in the run-up to the House vote. The British ambassador, for example, sent a message back to London that, quote, the Federal Party in the House of Representatives seemed determined 
to support the choice of Mr. Burr to be the President of the United States, provided he is willing to agree to certain conditions. These reports, of course, reached Jefferson, who had no difficulty believing that Burr was conspiring to claim the presidency. Trust had always been in short supply between the two men. Now, at this moment of extreme political tension, the relations were liable to break down completely. Jefferson first reached out to Burr with a somewhat passive-aggressive letter as the Electoral College results first became known. Quote, while I must congratulate you, my dear sir, I feel most sensitively the loss of your aid in our new administration. The implication was clear. Burr would be nothing more than a politically impotent vice president in the Jefferson administration. Burr's response was equally canny. On the one hand, he assured Jefferson that he would, quote, never think of diverting a single vote. Yet, at the same time, he discussed his willingness to, quote, abandon the office of VP if it shall be thought that I could be more useful in any active station. Perhaps Burr was seeking a deal which would grant him greater power in the new administration. In a subsequent letter to an ally in Congress, Burr made a clearer statement of his refusal to work with the Federalists. Quote, Every man who knows me ought to know that I should utterly disclaim all competition with Jefferson. Be assured that the Federal Party can entertain no wish for such an exchange. This seemingly definitive statement, however, was not the end of the story. Federalists, for their part, certainly hoped to maintain open channels with Burr and urged him to, quote, keep the game perfectly in your own hands. More significantly, Burr allegedly rejected as, quote, unreasonable, unnecessary, and impertinent the idea that he would issue a public statement threatening to resign immediately if elected over Jefferson. One Democratic Republican also reported Burr musing that, in the event of a continuing deadlock, we, quote, we must have a president and a constitutional one. Our friends must join the Federalists and give the president. The meaning was clear. He was the only possible compromise candidate in the event of an ongoing stalemate. A further story of Burr's activities comes from February 1801, just the before the House of Representatives was set to convene for the big vote. Albert Gallatin, a congressman from Pennsylvania who would later serve as Jefferson's Secretary of the Treasury, sent Burr a letter which has subsequently been destroyed. Though we don't know the exact contents of Gallatin's letter, one Burr ally later claimed that it urged him to come down to Washington immediately. Allegedly, Gallatin wrote that some Democratic-Republican congressmen were considering switching their support to Burr as a compromise candidate to break the deadlock. Their votes could be won if he met with them in person. According to this account, Burr immediately packed his bags, but, quote, at the critical moment his heart failed him, and he remained at Albany, end quote. Instead, Burr replied to Gallatin that he believed Jefferson had already sewn up the necessary support. Gallatin, for his part, understandably always denied that he had made any move to undercut the president in whose cabinet he would later serve. 
This confusing swirl of events was further complicated by the fact that Federalists were hardly uniform in their willingness to support Burr as an alternative to Jefferson. Hamilton, the most, federal, the most famous Federalist of all, was dead set in his resistance to Burr. As soon as the tie became known, Hamilton told friends that, quote, Jefferson is to be preferred. He called Burr, quote, bankrupt beyond redemption except by the plunder of his country, and, employing one of the classical references that the founders so enjoyed, dubbed Burr, quote, truly the Catiline of America. Hamilton commenced a furious letter-writing campaign urging Federalists in Congress against backing Burr. He would, quote, only promote the purposes of the desperate and the profligate, would disgrace our country abroad, and was, quote, a voluptuary by system, with an ambition that will be content with nothing less than permanent power in his own hands. Hamilton further floated the idea of reaching some sort of accommodation with Jefferson, whom he described as the, quote, the least of two evils. In the popular imagination, Hamilton's attacks on Burr's candidacy were critical in ultimately breaking Federalist opposition to Jefferson. However, it is probably stretching the truth to say that Hamilton single-handedly swung the election. Sure, he may have had some influence over individual Federalist members of Congress, but his voice was still just one among many. A whole swirl of factors went into determining the election's final outcome. Also, just a quick note, you sometimes hear it said that Hamilton's campaign against Burr was one of the deciding factors leading up to their duel. That was not the case. That was the result of a later, much more public spat between the two men. Congress finally convened on February 11th. From the outset, it was clear that the past two months of maneuvering had done nothing to break the impasse. Eight states voted for Jefferson, six went for Burr, and the two states with split delegations were recorded as abstaining. The House cast a remarkable 36 ballots over the next few days. The, the breakthrough finally came via Federalist James Bayard of Delaware. As his state's lone representative, he could decide the election with a single shift in his vote. Speaking through intermediaries, Bayard received a vague promise from Jefferson's camp that sitting Federalists in the civil service would not be turned out of their posts en masse in the new administration. This was good enough for Bayard, who set about convincing some more of his fellow party members. In the end, Bayard, along with Federalists in Maryland, Vermont, and South Carolina, agreed to cast blank ballots. This meant that the two previously tied states now went into Jefferson's column. The final tally was 10 states for Jefferson, 4 for Burr, and 2, Delaware and South Carolina, abstaining. And so, Jefferson was finally inaugurated as the nation's third president on March 4, 1801. It was an intentionally muted affair, the first inauguration to be held in Washington, D.C. Eager to stress his Republican sensibilities, Jefferson arrived at the still unfinished Capitol building on foot at the head of a small procession of friends and supporters. There, he was greeted by Burr, who had already been sworn in as the new vice president. 
While the president was keen to urge reconciliation after the tumultuous election, his inauguration speech made it clear that this reconciliation would be on his terms. He soon famously cast his victory as, quote, the Revolution of 1800, which had been necessary to protect the values of the previous Revolution of 1776. The Federalist Party, by implication, was a threat to these values. If Jefferson's opponents were to have any future in his new political system, it would only be by accepting many of his central arguments. Likewise, it was envisioned that Jefferson's newly minted vice president would have little place in this new order. As we've seen for several episodes, relations between Burr and the Virginians had always been frosty at best, a marriage of convenience rather than a true love match. The events of January and February 1801 had shattered what little trust existed between Burr and Jefferson. Jefferson and the Southern leaders of the Democratic-Republican Party were absolutely convinced that Burr had schemed with the Federalists to steal the election. Such treachery could not go unpunished. Burr and his allies in Tammany would be effectively frozen out of the new administration. So, to wrap up, how fair was Jefferson's criticism? What can we say about Burr's actions during the electoral crisis? We do have a few shreds of information about his behavior and state of mind. There are, for example, those statements in which he vociferously refused to issue a public statement discouraging Federalist support. More dramatically, there was the story in which he allegedly packed his bags ready to set off for Washington to court wavering congressmen. These accounts, however, should all be taken with substantial grains of salt. Everything was recorded several years after the fact, usually at second or third hand. Indeed, some of this information only comes down to us from a notebook authored by Jefferson himself several years later, when his hatred of Burr was fully solidified. So, all we're actually left with is Burr's resounding silence. As was true throughout his career, Burr played things close to his vest. Jefferson and his allies were correct that Burr certainly did not take any active steps to dissuade Congressional Federalists from supporting him. Perhaps a carefully worded public statement or a few strategically placed personal letters could have ended the doubt deadlock from the outset. However, it's just as true that there is no evidence that Burr was actively plotting to steal the election away from Jefferson. In the words of one Federalist, quote, had Burr done anything for himself, he would long ere this have been president. Indeed, it was the supposedly high-minded Jefferson who was ultimately willing to reach some sort of accommodation with the Federalist Bayard. In this light, Burr's failure to lift a finger for his own candidacy could be seen as a noble refusal to interfere with an ongoing constitutional process. And so Burr's silence has become a sort of Rorschach test. Was he a conniving schemer intent on subverting the election's results, or a more disinterested figure with the best interests of the nation's political system in mind? Historians have been debating these points for more than 200 years now, 
and will never come to any sort of conclusion. What we can say for certain, however, is that the election crisis had a devastating effect on Burr's political career. He was now deeply distrusted, and in some circles even hated, by both Federalists and Democratic Republicans. Just months before, Burr had pulled off a remarkable defeat in delivering almost single-handedly New York, and thus the entire election, into the Democratic-Republican column. Now, however, the stage was set for one of the most dramatic falls from grace in all of American political history. That, however, will be a subject for another day. I've gone on more than long enough today. In the meantime, uh, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed the show.